You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted to be joined today by Dr. Peter Hotez, a close friend and renowned research scientist and advocate. He's the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and a professor at the Baylor College of Medicine. He also directs the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, where he is an endowed chair of tropical pediatrics. He's served as a diplomat, as a U.S. envoy to Middle East and North Africa. And he's been a close advisor to two Texan governors in periods of major outbreaks, Zika, Ebola, and a staunch and very vocal defender of the value and merits of vaccines. So, Peter, thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy schedule to be with us today. Thanks, Steve. It's uh, good to hear your voice and good speaking with you. So, Peter, you're there in Houston today. It's Tuesday, July 14th. It is one of the epicenters of this accelerating outbreak across Texas and across the Sun Belt in the West and increasingly in other areas. Can you just describe for us what is it like right now in Houston? Well, here in Houston and in Texas, we're still in the throes of a very dire public health crisis, an epidemic which is really surging out of control in terms of number of new cases in most of the major metropolitan areas in Houston, but also Austin, Dallas, San Antonio. And it's paralleled by a sharp rise in ICU admissions and hospital admissions and positivity rates. And now we're seeing the hospital staff get exhausted at many of our medical centers, including our Texas medical centers, because it is exhausting taking care of ICU patients with COVID-19, not only emotionally, but just physically donning and doffing the PPE. And now we're starting across the South, including in Texas and in Houston, hospital staff getting sick. So that's another dimension. And again, we saw this in Italy and Spain and New York, so we shouldn't be surprised, but so we're having, you know, staffing issues across the state. So we're hearing, for instance, today about the government, U.S. government sending in healthcare workers into some of the hospitals in Texas. And so this is the frustration, of course, is this was both predicted and predictable. We knew this was going to happen. And I certainly did everything. I pulled every lever I could to try to prevent it from happening. But, but here we are today, unfortunately. How close do you think we are? Peter, in Houston to the health system actually breaking? Well, you know, our Texas Medical Center, which you've seen, Steve, is the largest in the nation, largest in the world. Uh, So as uh, one of my colleagues says, Mark Wallace, who's the CEO of Texas Children's Hospital, often says the TMC has a lot of heft. We have hundreds of more than 100,000 employees. So I'm confident we are going to weather this, but it is certainly a strain on the system. It's some of the other metro areas that I'm particularly worried about that potentially things could break down. Yeah. You know, everyone's trying their hardest. But, you know, when you have this kind of surge and this level of acuity, it's tough for any health system to manage. Let's talk a little bit about how we got to this point. I mean, you've in your comments earlier, you've put an emphasis on both the abdication of authority and responsibility at the federal level and how that creates a kind of invitation to fail, whether you're a governor or a mayor or a, or a school leader. So the federal level you've identified as one very important 
area to dissect as to what happened. But also there's the peculiarities within each of the states in question in terms of the politics of the place. And Texas had some particularly toxic politics, particularly between the governor, the Republican Governor Abbott and the Democratic mayors of the four lead cities. So tell us a little bit, unpack a little bit on how do we get to this terrible point? Well, I, you know, looking at this whole thing, I, I really point my finger squarely at the at the federal government and taking on a strategy which they should have realized was going to fail from the beginning. And that was to do business as usual, to put the states in the lead with the federal government providing backup support through FEMA and PPE and advice and, and all the things you hear from Secretary Azar. That works most of the time, but it could not work in a disease of this level of transmission and severity of, of illness for lots of reasons. One of the biggest is the fact that the world has changed, as we've talked about, Steve, in terms of what's happening at the state level. The governors now are under siege by both the far left and the far right, probably more the far right than the left. And it's hard for them to make decisions and disentangle good public health decisions from the politics. So they needed the federal government and the CDC to provide directives to them to provide cover. So the conversations that I think went on in almost every state in the South was groups saying that uh, the federal government can't tell us what to do. They can't tell us to wear masks. They can't tell us to do the social distancing. What the governors needed to be able to say was, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I, I empathize. But the truth is what the CDC and the federal government are telling me, if we don't do this, this many thousands of Texans are going to die or Floridians or, or people from Arizona. And they never had that cover. And uh, that proved, I think, to be catastrophic. We'll do the dissection after the fact, but I think it's going to come down to something along those lines. We did not have the full power both intellectually in terms of the modeling and the roadmap, but also the cover for the governors to create the national response that we needed. And what about the role of the culture wars within Texas and the, and the standoff between the Democratic mayors and the Republican governor? Tell us a bit about how that has compounded the situation. Well, it's actually more compounded by the fact that the governor, for instance, is sandwiched between uh, forces to the fringe right. House Freedom Caucus and that kind of thing, as I said, you know, actively campaigning against science, against vaccines, which, you know, we've discussed, I've gone up up against for years, but also social distancing and masks on the one side and the fact that the cities tend to be on the left in terms of their governance there. I think, you know, under ordinary circumstances, the governors and the mayors and the county judges would have worked fine. But there was that disruptive activity coming from the far right that I think created a lot of mischief and damage. Peter, we're joined by uh, my partner in this enterprise, Andrew Schwartz. Andrew, welcome. You want to jump in? Yeah, thank you. Really an honor to be with you. I've, I've been following your work closely. I wanted to ask you, Peter, um, you've been very vocal about the impacts on the runway. Uh, you've been very vocal about the impacts that the outbreak's having on poor people, black people, Latinx community. How exactly are you seeing that play out? 
Well, I'm seeing it play out in a couple of ways. One, first of all, there's not a lot of data flow. We're not getting data in real time as to who's piling into hospitals, into ICUs, and who's dying in this epidemic. We got kind of get it slowly after the fact. So a lot of it is based on pictures and anecdotal information. But I, you know, the more I see, the more I'm convinced the story is going to be those piling into ICUs and hospitals uh, right now across all the southern states are overwhelmingly black and brown people, people of color. And I think the Hispanic Latinx community is getting particularly devastated. I know this is the case in South Texas where things are really bad. They don't have the health system infrastructure to make that happen. And this is why I'm calling this a humanitarian catastrophe. We really failed to protect our vulnerable populations, people living in poverty. And one of the reasons that I stepped outside my comfort zone over the last few weeks, you know, I've been trying to stick really close to the science, focusing only on the science. And and I still do that, of course, but I had to go that next step because I felt that not doing so itself would have been an immoral thing to do. So, you know, my wife, Anne, you know, said to me, and she gave me some of the courage to do this. She said, Peter, you know, if six weeks from now you see how much devastation there is among the low-income communities and Hispanic and African-American communities, you'll you'll never forgive yourself. So if you're going to do it, do it now. And And that's what I've been doing on CNN and MSNBC and podcasts like this is you know, sounding the alarm that we are we are devastating low-income neighborhoods across the southern half of the United States. What do we need to do about this? Like, what are what are the policy changes that we need to make in the immediate sense right now to help save people? Well, that's the point. We still could do a lot to help people. I think, again, it has to come out of Washington or their designate, whether it's CDC or in Atlanta or somewhere else. But we need a federal guidance, federal roadmap, federal-led initiative that actually gives directives to the states, looks at each state, whether it's Florida and Texas where things are raging or whether it's Vermont where things are just the opposite, and to say, look, as a nation, we have to get to containment mode or close to containment mode by a specified date, let's say October 1st. And at that point, we can then slowly open up the country again. And that means we can open up schools and colleges. You know, we could even have the National Football League potentially. And that's what's happening in Europe, across Europe right now. They've done just that. They've done the hard work to get to containment mode and then open things up. We've never been willing to do that hard work at, at the federal level. Peter, you're talking about the need to go back for some period of time to a really tight lockdown, right? That's right, but not for every state. I would bring it all down nationally at the same level, and some states are already there, are probably close to it. And looking at the numbers, places like Rhode Island or Vermont or Maine may already be there. But for states like Florida and Texas, where we're in free fall, you just got to lock that sucker down for a period of six weeks or so. And then you can start opening schools. But the problem is, there is this kind of sort of intellectual laziness from the on the part of the federal government that just wants to push forward with without any regard for human life. To, to say that we're going to open up 
Houston Independent School District in the middle of a raging COVID epidemic is just ridiculous. What's going to happen is teachers will start getting sick within two weeks, and so will the bus drivers, and so will the cafeteria workers. It'll demoralize the staff, and the whole thing will fall apart. You know that's what's going to happen. And the same will happen in Miami. The same will happen in Phoenix. And so the Oval Office is obsessed with ideology, and it just goes in the face of anything that the science would would tell us is the right thing to do. So where's the states, though, in this? Why are they not listening to you and your colleagues who are sounding this alarm and saying, listen, the bus drivers are going to get sick. The teachers are going to get sick. The cafeteria workers are going to get sick. And in two weeks, these children are going to be at risk. Their parents are going to be at risk. Their grandparents are going to be at risk. And people are going to get really sick. The hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. And it's going to be worse than it is now. And we're talking about the fall and then even into the winter when people are all going to have to be inside. Well, here's the deal. They are starting to, but the problem is they had to be shown the deaths. They had to be shown the ICU admissions to get it. And it didn't have to be that way. If we had had a federal government in the lead from the beginning, giving that directive, they could have shown the models, the epidemiologic models, and there's no shortage of them, right? We've got ones coming out of University of Pennsylvania, University of Washington, University of Texas, and, and many others, and said, look, if you guys don't do this, this is what's going to happen to your state. We're telling you this is what you need to do. The governors could have then said to all of the political forces on their right and their left, hey, guys, look, this is what the federal government's telling me. I'm the governor, the chief executive of the state. I have to save lives. And it never would have gotten out of hand like it did. And I don't know why this happened, why there was this insistence on the states leading it, whether it's entirely the Trump administration's at fault. Some colleagues are saying, nope, CDC insisted on this. That's how they always do business because they don't want to interfere with their relationship with the states. I, I have no way of knowing what's true or some combination of those things. And those are the things we'll have to look at you know, once we get past this terrible period to, to understand what went wrong and prevent it from happening again. Peter, the current Trump White House is, of course, deeply opposed to this notion of going back to the kind of a strong hand with a return to a lockdown, return to building capacity, resetting the clock, particularly in the middle of our electoral season. I mean, what the more realistic alternative is suffering through this with a strategy of trying to minimize the toll in terms of death and people that survive with huge conditions expensive and complicated conditions. Yeah, and that's what's happening right now. So you're absolutely right. This is what is going on right now, and it's it's not satisfactory because what, what you're really saying is each state is going to wait for something terrible to happen, and then they'll react, and that's what's going to happen in Florida. and Texas, it's already happened. We've already seen the big rise in, in deaths and ICU admissions now. Elected leaders at the municipal, county, and state level are starting to respond. It'll probably happen in Arizona. It's already happened in California. But, you know, this is why, you know, God gave us a forebrain to separate us from non-human primates, right? We were able, we're supposed to be able to anticipate big issues, and we're, we're not using our God-given uh, gifts here. Uh, this is terrible uh, how, how we've allowed this to happen. So just about every night, Peter, I'm watching you on Anderson Cooper and some of your colleagues as well. And Anderson Cooper's just shaking his head back and forth saying, my goodness, why is nobody listening? 
And you guys are saying things that seem very obvious, seem very clear, seem like things that we just need to do that other countries are doing and other countries are doing successfully. And we're reading about what other countries are doing and they're solving problems. What is keeping us from solving problems? Well, in, in a nutshell, I think it's the way we've run public health in this country for decades and successfully for most of the time and lack of awareness that it's not working for this virus. I think that's one. But I think the bigger one is probably the insistence by the White House that they're going to go a certain way. And, you know, I'm not again, I'm a scientist. I'm not I'm a politician. And I really don't understand their motivation. What everyone says, it's because this is what the president feels he needs to do to win the reelection. And that may be true, but I, I don't understand the motivation for what's going on. The definition of insanity is you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting in a different result, sometimes attributed to Einstein, sometimes attributed to others. But it's clearly a failed strategy, and yet we keep on banging away with this. And now the added piece to this, of course, is what I perceive as a disinformation campaign. And an anti-science movement in which scientists have been pretty invisible in their, by their own choice. Yeah. And Steve, we've had this conversation before and I've written about this. I had a paper out in PLUS before uh, uh, it came out earlier this year that says one of the things that enables anti-science movements to flourish is the silence of the scientists and the fact that we're just not out there like we need to be. And that's something that I've been pushing hard on in PhD and postdoctoral training and medical training is we need to bring up a whole generation of young people who know how to do this public engagement piece and not learn it like I did with this trial by fire. Are you seeing across the country a more vocal and assertive action by, by scientists? I see mixed pictures. I think, you know, one of the problems that we have is, you know, academic health centers are very risk averse institutions and they don't like their docs and their scientists sort of out there. And that culture still persists. And, and that's something that, you know, I've had great success working on with Baylor and Texas Children's over the last decade. They've been great about giving me that free reign to do it. But that's the exception, I think, in most academic health centers. They're all about, you know, protecting the reputation of the institution. And they're very reluctant to let their scientists and docs speak out, even though it's not working for the country. Are you worried that the misinformation campaigns that we're seeing now are going to accelerate once there's some form of a vaccine or prophylactics? Well, I'm actually worried it's going to accelerate even before they get there because, you know, what we're seeing, we're, we're rapidly snowballing to a very unstable situation, which has the following elements. I think, one, the cases are going to continue to go up. That's not going to stop because there's no national roadmap. Second, the president's poll numbers will drop. And rather than take ownership and, and lead a federal response, what we're seeing more and more of is just grow the disinformation piece. And we've already seen, you know, and he's trying different things in terms of deflection. First, it was China. Then it was the World Health Organization. Now he's going after the scientists. And that's going to be the next step. And the big worrisome piece is whether it takes on a physical manifestation. And we've seen bits and pieces of it, you know, people parading around state capitals wearing camouflage and holding guns. And and I've written about this recently in a, in a piece in Microbes and Infection. 
it's not like it's going the world's going to see it right <laughs> but uh <laughs> we'll get it out there and we'll get it out on our podcast notes but at least it's out there right um yeah. and it says that we are and i wrote this back in you know april and it got published in early may it says that the the weeks heading up to the presidential election are going to be a deeply troubling time for the country a very unstable time in our nation and and right now, all roads point to that happening, and I'm very concerned for the country. Have you felt personally imperiled in this period? I mean, you've been out in the front line of battling with the anti-vaccine movement, which puts you at risk. So it's, this isn't entirely new. But in this particular moment in time, when Tony Fauci's under direct assault from multiple directions, including the White House itself. And Tony needs personal protection. Tony yeah. has a security detail. Yeah, yeah because he's, a, he, he's an employee of the federal government. And uh, what am I? I'm a medical school professor. So uh, there are a lot of concerns. And, you know, definitely the, the stuff you see on social media is pretty frightening. And the, the emails and the letters. And so it is, it is accelerating and something that we'll have to look out for. Peter, let's talk a little bit about vaccines. You've you've been very vocal, and that's part of your profession. It's a central central component of your professional career as a research scientist. Um, you're also on the active group, the ACDIV, the Acceleration of COVID-19 Therapeutics and Interventions, which, as I recall, Francis Collins and Tony Fauci put that together as, as an advisory group in looking at the portfolio of vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostics prioritizing and offering advice. Do you think that we're under severe risk with Operation Warp Speed and other things that the politics are gonna bend the science against better judgment around safety and efficacy on the vaccines? Or do you feel like there's systems and controls and balances in place? Well, as I've been on those discussions with NIH Active, you know, and by the way, there's been a still a firewall between NIH Active and Operation Warp Speed, so no idea what goes on there. But at least in the discussions, it's pretty clear the scientific community is unified about what needs to be done. You know, a proper phase three clinical trial, 10,000 to 30,000 people for each of the vaccines and going through ACIP and, and Verbac and all the usual checks and balances. And most of that acceleration actually is not really in the clinical trials. There is some consolidation, but mostly it's around stepping up the manufacturing and, and doing multiple, getting multiple candidates and play at once. And, and right now our vaccine is going to be more global with India and other countries rather than part of Operation Warp Speed, maybe down the line. So I'm not that worried. What I am worried about, though, is the level of communications coming out of Operation Warp Speed has been extremely poor or, or absent. And, you know, just calling it Operation Warp Speed, which was a dog whistle to RFK Jr. and the anti-vaccine people, and also the, all the stuff that's gone on with some of the biotechs with the dumping of stock and the conflicts of interest and the terrible press releases, not putting their data up, all of that feeds into the anti-vaccine movement. So we will have a problem. There's no question about it. Both Reuters and the Associated Press have already found that up to half of Americans won't accept COVID-19 vaccines, even if they're made available. And our modeling studies showed you need 70% prevention of infection and coverage in order to interrupt transmission. So a combination of the vaccine selection, which will be partially protective vaccines, at least at first, and the terrible messaging 
we're only going to achieve some of our goals. I think the vaccines that come out will be companion technologies. They'll reduce severity of illness, but they're not going to interrupt transmission. We're not going to achieve herd immunity with those first rounds of vaccines. We could have, but we went in a different direction. So if assuming there is an awakening at the White House and Operation Warp Speed and people come around to the idea that we need a communication strategy to an American public that's nervous, distrustful, weary. I would think that an American public that's in lockdown and living in in the fear that this thing is not going to get brought under control and seeing the disruptions in all aspects of their lives, a safe and effective vaccine is going to be pretty welcome if you're looking at 200,000 dead and millions impacted by this as survivors, don't you think that the American people can be brought around? Oh, I think they can be brought around. I, I really don't know what the country looks like a year from now when the vaccines come out. If the current regime gets reelected, we might still be living in this time of disinformation where there's just denial that there's a problem and open for business despite people continuing to overwhelm our health system. That That's a real possibility. Or we look like something that resembles one of the Mad Max movies, uh, uh, this sort of post-apocalyptic uh, world. I, I don't think we'll get there, but you never well, let's know. Let's hope not. <laughs> or, or, you know, we'll get some changes and some adult supervision in the government, and then that would be uh, that would be welcome as well. But I think there's too many unknowns to know what the world looks like for us in 2021. Peter, can I ask you, we've been talking about Tony Fauci during this podcast. I don't like what's going on with the politicization of Tony Fauci. This week, the White House really came down on him through the press office. What do you make of that? And, you know, it just seems so out of place. To me, it's offensive. You know, I don't want to speak for Steve, but it really hurts to see political people of any party come down on Tony Fauci when he served so many presidents and done so much good for this country. Yeah, you know, I've known Tony for 40 years. He's a mentor and helped me a lot in my career and learned a lot from him. And I, you know, try to emulate him, you know, when I'm out there in, in the public, because I think he's, you know, been more successful than any other a physician scientist I know of in terms of communicating important messages or hard messages. I think one of the reasons he's successful is he knows how to put himself aside to get work done, you know, that he doesn't need to stick in his ego. He's happy to just enough to see things move ahead. And I think that's probably what's going on. So he's working hard to be the adult in the room and not letting get things out of hand. I think what's also happening is as our national strategy, or if you want to call it that, whatever it is, as our epidemic is raging out of control, I would guess the White House Coronavirus Task Force meetings are not very happy places right now. And so there's probably, and so people are trying to salvage reputations and legacies at, at all levels. And so there's probably a lot of finger pointing going on. It's probably not a very happy place. And of course, this is what this president does. He likes to sow discord and chaos. And, and that's how he's managed to press his agenda, even if it's at the expense, as you say, of 135,000 lives going up to 200,000 lives. You know, uh, Peter, uh, to follow up on Andrew's point, I mean, there's a bit of an experiment underway here. Tony Fauci's indisputably uh, one of the most revered and respected individuals in America, and that's because of his 
respect of science, his humility, his obvious integrity and judgment, and the things that you've talked about in terms of taking himself out of the equation and putting the truth forward, being a truth teller in a very respectful fashion. And I wonder really how much a smear campaign coming from a variety of directions can really damage that standing with the American people. I'm sure it can take him down a few percentage points. But I think that when I've polled different people of different walks and different persuasions, I don't think they respond very favorably to this sort of very blatant effort at trying to discredit someone that the majority of Americans respect enormously. Well, it's, it sounds like after enough people called the White House out on it, it sounds like they're backing down, at least for now. So so that's that's good news. So hopefully that'll be it. But you never know. You know, the president was able to use his base very effectively into to win the 2016 election, even if it wasn't the majority of the country. All bets are off at this point. As I say, as COVID cases seem to mount and ICU admissions mount, and anything could happen at this point. Peter, well, let's close with the question we ask all of our guests, which is, where do you get the greatest strength and hope in this situation that, as we've just talked about, is so dangerous? And we're not out of the woods by any means at this moment. What's the source of hope and strength for you? For me, it's, it's seeing that the, the power of our research universities and institutions and the NIH in order to advance technologies. That seems to be continuing pretty well and uh, unabated. I mean, we're having new monoclonal antibody therapies coming out at least two that I think are going to be very effective. We're advancing, accelerating new antiviral drugs. We're already lowering mortality based on on our science and seeing the benefit of adding anticoagulants and dexamethasone and remdesivir and the plasma convalescent serum. And that's just after a few weeks at this. So, you know, I still see a very robust biomedical science infrastructure in place that that seems to be moving. And again, that's that's not an accident. That's the leadership of Francis Collins and Tony Fauci that has been able to build a firewall around the NIH and prevent it from undue political influence. And then also the communication between the scientists. I take um, a lot of encouragement from that. I mean, everyone is still putting their stuff up on BioArchive and MedArchive and the papers are getting accepted rapidly, so all the scientists can see this stuff very quickly. That's been great to see. So that's, I think, very encouraging. But unless we get some federal leadership for this COVID-19 response, we're going to be continue to spiral downward in what's looking like a pretty dire public health situation. Peter, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today and your insight. Thank you. Uh, and uh, who knows, the world is changing so rapidly. Maybe in three weeks, we'll have to redo this all over again and uh, look at a different world. We'd love to have you back. All right. Well, thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 